What is unfolding in the dystopian surveillance state and open-air prison that is the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region is considered one of the worst human rights abuses in the world today. Anywhere from 1 to 3 million people, including Uyghurs, Kazakhs, Tajiks, and other ethnic minorities, are forcibly confined to the Xinjiang province by the authoritarian Chinese government, simply because they speak a different language and embrace a different culture. Through discussions about digital authoritarianism, Uyghur forced labor, and personal detention stories, academics, journalists, and activists in this episode provide a multidimensional understanding of the genocide unfolding in the Xinjiang region today and offer concrete ideas on how listeners can help stand up against these atrocities. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This episode was recorded during a two-day event series co-hosted by the Human Rights Foundation and Harvard University called Genocide in the 21st Century, the Uyghur Crisis. For more information on HRF's work in this area, please visit our website at hrf.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Uh, the Human Rights Foundation and our various partners are very pleased to be bringing you this event with three world experts on what's happening uh, in China with regard to the repression of ethnic minorities. Um, very, very happy to have uh, Mega, Darren, and, and Bethany with us today. I'd like to just get right to it, and we'll start with, with Mega. Uh, and I'd love for you to introduce yourself, tell the audience a little bit about the work you're doing, um, and talk a little bit about how technology specifically in your mind, you know, what role has that played with regard to the Chinese Communist Party and the way it's been able to, to kind of control the society, do social engineering versus just straight, you know, straightforward politics. Like what, what, what exactly is the role of tech? Are we exaggerating it or, or is it actually playing a really serious role? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll try to keep it brief to allow a little more space for my fellow panelists here. Um, but um, so I'm a, a correspondent at BuzzFeed News. Um, I was based in China as a journalist with uh, Reuters and BuzzFeed for six years. And um, I've been reporting on Xinjiang pretty much on, sort of on and off since around 2013 and um, have traveled a little bit in the region and um, have spent a lot of time talking to um, Uyghurs, Cossacks and others who have left the region and gone to places like Kazakhstan, Western Europe and, um, and Turkey among other places. Um, and uh, last year um, I published a series along with uh, my co-authors Alison Killing and Christo Buschek exploring the, um, the mass internment program from a few different perspectives. Um, on your um, on your question about technology and um, how it um, how it sort of helps helps the government um, you know uh, implement its policies in the region, um, it's it's kind of it's a big question. It's a complex question. I guess like to me, um, I, I've primarily looked at it from the standpoint of surveillance technology, and I think um, surveillance technology is sort of what has enabled the government, sort of broadly speaking, to gather the data necessary uh, for its program. Um, and I guess, like broadly speaking, it, it, it has enabled the government to flag people that it considers to be, um, you know, risk or threat in some way. Um, I think surveillance tech in the region takes, um, you know, several different forms, but the most important ones to me are biometric surveillance. So things like um, face recognition, um, other things that happen in public spaces, iris scans, um, you know, uh, 
security checkpoints and stuff like that. Um, on top of that, you also have kind of uh, the use of AI and kind of like data-driven surveillance um, that police and other authorities in the region are using based on um, all kinds of data collected about people's lives. Um, these data points range from things that are really prosaic, things like um, you know, people's local travel patterns, their electricity usage, um, you know, uh, the number of people in their homes, and uh, things like cell phone usage and patterns of cell phone usage, all the way to other things, like um, kind of more serious aspects of people's lives, things like uh, religious practices, um, you know, personal beliefs, and, and stuff like that. And Human Rights Watch and other organizations have um, have uh, have documented the relationship between the collection of this kind of data and the analysis um, of the data by government and um, you know the decisions made about people being sent um, to mass internment camps or um, you know be, even being handed prison sentences. Um, so I'll I'll just wrap up there. I think there's a lot more to say about this. I'll just make one more point, which is uh, that I hope we can all talk more about, which is that the government has relied quite a bit on um, technology, like uh, private companies um, that create a lot of this technology um, and um, and implement it in order to carry out its policies. Um, you know, these range from uh, companies like Landisoft, which is a big China, uh, Ch sorry, Chinese data company that The Intercept recently reported, um, you know, created a data analysis pro uh, program that's being used by uh, public security authorities in the region um, in order to analyze people's behavior um, to a company that we just reported on um, called Shanghai Renway, um, Renway Electronics. Uh, it's a Shanghai-based company that um, has outfitted internment camp, uh, sorry, prisons um, in, in the region with surveillance systems. Um, and they describe the technology they use um, in quite great detail. And um, they range from things like uh, surveillance, it's kind of conventional surveillance systems uh, using cameras to um, like wearable devices. One of the things they advertise is things like heart rate monitors um, that enable them to monitor, the authorities in the prison to monitor prisoners um, sort of 24 seven. Um, so I definitely think there's a lot to to unpack um, here, and um, I'm looking forward to learning from all of you. Thank you, Mega. Uh, we'll go. We'll go to you, Darren. Um, so again, you know your thoughts on, you know the 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 brutality of digital repression versus maybe repression of of you know decades past. I mean, what is the difference for you in the work that you know you've done and what you've seen? And also, just tell us a little bit more about about your career and and you know what what you're up to now. Sure. Well, it's great to be here. I'm an anthropologist at the University of Colorado, um, and soon going to be at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. Um, and my research has focused on migration to the city in Northwest China. I first went to Xinjiang, the Uyghur region in 2003 um, as an undergraduate student and have been sort of, you know, looking at that space for, for quite a while now. Um, I did my field work there in 2011 and then 2014 and 15, which is actually where I met Bethany for the first time. Um, and what I was looking at during my field work as an anthropologist was the way that digital technology, digital media, social media, WeChat was, was changing Uyghur sociality. It was helping them to connect with the broader Muslim world. It was also um, shaping their migration patterns to the city. It helped them to find jobs um, and, and you know also changed the way they thought about their faith in some ways too, in terms of um, how they linked up with with, with broader you know, movements within Islam, the Islamic world. Um, 
over time, I started to see how that those uh, digital activities uh, became something that the state could then use to assess their behavior. Um, and so what I've been seeing for the last four or five years is the way that you know, advanced uh, technologies, digital forensics tools, for instance, that are used to scan people's phones and digital histories are used as a way of collecting evidence of their potential extremism or terrorism. Um, and along with those tools, the state has hired around 90,000 additional police uh, officers. There are most, most of them are low-level assistant police, or they're called xiejing, uh, which are actually kind of a contracted group of, of workers. And most of their work is focused on checkpoint surveillance, on digital forensics, scanning people's phones and IDs. Um, and, and it's really put the state in a lot more contact with the general population. Um, and so they start to really trace people's movement and control their movement across space and also their digital activity. Um, you know, in the past, there's been a lot of repression, but the state really didn't have the capacity to control people's speech, to control their, their online behavior, especially if they're using Uyghur oral speech. Um, that's no longer the case. The state has now uh, begun to really you know, hone in on what people are actually saying and thinking. Their social networks are being analyzed. Um, and so it's, it's really allowed the state to concentrate power to a much larger degree. You know, the, the, the level of policing is at the level of East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, so what we're looking at here is really like the Stasi with the latest technological devices that can be used to target this this population of people, um, which you know is what makes this an unprecedented situation in terms of policing and technology. Thank you, Darren um, and Bethany. Uh, would love to hear about your your background here. Uh, and also your general thoughts on this question of how technology has changed the ability of, of the government to uh, repress and shape uh, the people and achieve, achieve their aims, or, or if it hasn't in your view. Sure, um, thanks for having me. So I'm, my name is Bethany Allen Abrahamian and I'm the China reporter at Axios. Uh, prior to joining Axios, I was the lead reporter with the China Cables Project at the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, where we uh, reported on a, um, a trove of leaked government documents that revealed the inner workings of the mass internment camps in Xinjiang. Um, but before I get into answering your question, I want to talk about Mega and Darren, who are like two just incredible people, and they didn't say that enough about themselves. But Mega wrote, like I would say, like the first big seminal story about a, a dispatch from Xinjiang about the rise of a sort of techno dystopia there. Um, and it was, I remember when that story dropped and it was just, it was so shocking and so well reported. And, uh, you know, some number of months later, um, Mega was no longer permitted to stay in China after that. Um, so she really has paid a big price for her courageous reporting and has continued to report on what's happening in Xinjiang from a distance. And Darren is just like incredible. He's such an expert on, um, on he speaks Uyghur and is so compassionate for, for the, the things that are happening to his friends and his colleagues. And um, he's kept a database or like a list of, of scholars and intellectuals who have been disappeared. And when I visit, he helped me uh, arrange a trip to, to Arumchi in 2015. And when I got sick, in my hotel, his wife brought me medicine. So like, these are two people who I just like admire so much. I just wanted to say that. So how this has affected people's lives and uh, you know, what uh, is the government able to control what they're doing? I mean, this has, <laughs> this has really, I think 
devastated. I mean, the, the whole collection of policies, certainly the mass internments have, have been the worst and you can call them concentration camps, uh, you know, torture, there, there's, there's physical and psychological torture there. And there's the, the fear of being put in a camp, um, certainly very bad, but even outside of the camps, you know, the Uyghurs live in a, you know, a, a, a surveillance state that's constantly getting worse uh, and where they they don't know where how things are going to change in the in the future. And I want to read a quote from um, someone named Samantha Hoffman, who is an expert um, on this. Uh, she is based in Australia right now, and and what she has said is is so. Let me just read a little paragraph, and then I'll, I'll, I'll read about what the quote that she said. So perhaps even more significant than all the actual data that's being collected in Xinjiang all the time is the grinding psychological effects of living under such a system. With batteries of facial recognition cameras on street corners, endless checkpoints, and webs of informants, all this data collection generates a sense of an omniscient, omnipresent state that can peer into the most intimate aspects of daily life. As neighbors disappear based on the workings of unknown algorithms, Xinjiang lives in a perpetual state of terror. And so here's what, here's how Samantha Hoffman describes it. She says, that's how state terror works. Part of the fear that this instills is that you don't know when you're not okay. Um, it, it is not as though China has yet um, been able to perfect a system of predictive, they say that this data collection allows them to prevent future crimes or, you know, future terrorism, as they call it, it's kind of predictive policing that they're doing with some of this data. But that's not, that's not really, I mean, that's, I don't know if you can ever really do that. And I don't know if that will ever be possible, because I don't know if human behavior can be predicted in that way. But it's certainly not at that level right now in Xinjiang. And the, the Chinese government will say, yes, we're stopping all these crimes. There's there's no more terrorism. You know, we're all, it's, it's very precise. We're just getting all the, the dangerous people. They're just getting all the people is what they're doing. And you just never know when you're going to be okay. But that is, is partially how it works. Um, you know, and, and as part of a complete system, I, I think what, what the Chinese government has been able to effectively do is, is take the repression that previously existed in people's real lives and put it into the digital sphere. So, you know, people have been put into camps for having WhatsApp on their phones, just having WhatsApp on their phones, having different kinds of apps on their phones, you know, Zapia, which was another way to communicate with people. Um, you know, people know, everyone in China knows that WeChat, which is the Chinese equivalent of, of WhatsApp, um, is being monitored in real time by local public security bureaus and they know that sending private there's nothing private sending private messages is you know you might as well be doing skywriting so people watch what they say all the time and it doesn't just create an atmosphere of, of fear it makes you feel isolated because you're afraid to talk to anyone else about what you feel and so other people don't tell don't tell you what they feel because they're afraid too or if they you know if they do they might like go into a closet to tell you or something and there's no way to have a sense that i'm you know i'm terrified and i'm 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 having these thoughts, but everyone else, you know, they're all dancing happy Uyghurs. Maybe it's just my my problem or my fault. And it turns people against each other. It's not just in Xinjiang that this is that this is happening, although Xinjiang has the most extreme version. I mean, we're seeing this mass data collection and, and surveillance throughout the rest of mainland China. And it, it's a it's a you know overt policy. Um, the Chinese government has made it clear that it what's something they call the informatization of the economy and the intelligentization of the economy is they believe it's the, the economy of the future. And they're trying to leverage emerging technologies like AI uh, to order, you know, to, to be able to use all this data that they're vacuuming up. Um, and they're doing this, you know, in, in the, the military sphere, in, in financial technology, 
they're just working on launching um, a new um, a, the, the new digital uh, currency, which will allow you know a hundred percent constant um, you know real time surveillance of people's financial transactions, and not just to monitor it, but to also again try to use AI to do this. Now, this is aspirational, uh, but AI is you know many people believe that AI is the the direction of the future. So it's not just repression; it's also being able to learn from all this data and then leveraging that to have a more advanced economy and perhaps the most advanced economy in the world. So it's it's kind of all wrapped up together. Amazing. Thank thank you. Um, I, so first, I want to start with um asking you all to help us cut through what's real and what's exaggerated. Uh, of course, in journalism, there's a tendency, especially these days, for to, to, to be prone to sensationalism. Um, and the idea of, of China has attracted a lot of commentary, which probably you three would find maybe uninformed. Um, how do we cut through what's real and what's not with regard to stuff like predictive policing, social credit, big data? Like, there is like this backlash that says, it's not happening. It's exaggerated. These articles are all fake. Like, and and it's unclear like where that kind of narrative comes from. <laughs> like, obviously, some of it comes from people supporting the Chinese government, but like, there also seems to be a, an authentic narrative saying the media has just been lying the whole time. None of this stuff's actually happening. How do you all cut through that? Uh, I know two of you are journalists yourselves, but Mega, why don't we start with you? How, how would you assess um, exactly how you know the state of things and and you know, what is real and what is not? Sorry, I'm, I'm not muted, am I? Okay, um, in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, to me, like the answer to this question is not that different from how do you uh, differentiate between signal and noise on any other news story. Like I, the difference here is that it, in the past year, this has become an extremely kind of like politically charged subject, particularly in the United States. Um, because of the kind of drumbeat of uh, statements, particularly from the Trump administration uh, about this subject. So I think that's why we're starting to see a lot more kind of push and pull about, you know, what is the real situation and stuff like that. But my advice to readers is that you should treat it like any other news story, which is that when you're reading an article, whether it be about surveillance or social the social credit system in China, like you should look at the sourcing very carefully. Like to me, like I trust policy documents, I trust people in the region who have lived this and for whom that is their lived experience. Um, and I trust other forms of kind of concrete documentary evidence. And um, I think that there is a good deal of reporting on what's happening in Xinjiang that relies on those three uh, sources, I guess, broadly speaking. There is also a lot of press coverage that is like sort of opinionated or um, doesn't necessarily derive from um, you know, um, like, like, uh, I guess, concrete evidence or, or reporting that's actually done by that person. I think uh, those are areas like where um, it's important to be a little bit skeptical. Um, I also think that um, a lot of the pushback has come from the notion that surveillance technology is actually being used really widely, like around the world um, by authorities and not just in Xinjiang or just in China. And I think the appropriate response to that should be skepticism of surveillance technology, regardless of where it's used. And um, yeah, and I, I think that Xinjiang simply provides like a a really strong example of what happens when this type of technology, which does exist everywhere, is used against uh, you know particular racial or ethnic minority groups. Uh, Bethany, do you want to jump in on this in terms of you know how to how to cut through the the nonsense? I mean, just, yeah, just on a really practical level, I think uh, something that 
can be helpful is to find a number of journalists who, who you trust, who are actual China correspondents or actual technology correspondents, not, not columnists, you know, like this is their job and, and they're really, really in the weeds on it. You know, so people who cover China as correspondents at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or just mega, just follow mega. Um, <laughs> and when they, people like that write about the social credit system, for example, um, or surveillance or, you know, like BGI, having the potential to collect our genetic data from the blood samples, this kind of thing. Um, read those sources. Don't read the opinion pieces on, 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 you know, Fox News or The Hill or anywhere else, any kind of other, you know, any kind of opinion piece. Don't read those. Just read sort of the original reporting on that. And I find that to be a really helpful way because if you, you may not be an expert on it, so you can't parse you know, whether or not a particular article or particular sources that by themselves are very, are accurately done. But if you can identify who the experts are, you can, you know, get, follow, follow three or four, read everything they write. You'll be in a pretty good place. Okay. Darren, what are your thoughts? So oh, add, go ahead. Yeah. add one other thing to that. The social credit system, I think, has been one of the, the worst reported um, subjects. The people who actually write about it do a good job, but it, I think it really it sort of, it's, it's, it's deceptively simple to understand. You're like, oh, everyone gets a number. That's not that's not actually how it works, right? It's and it's also not really working, but maybe it is. Um, so that's been very poorly reported on. But uh, there, there's a flip side to this story, which is that I think there are also people who maybe want to believe that surveillance isn't going to work, that there isn't going to be a comprehensive surveillance state, that the social credit system will never be functional, because I think it's too, it's too difficult for people to believe. It's like believing in climate change. It's much easier just to not believe that it's real. It's real. Surveillance is real. The social credit system is a real thing that's currently under development. What's happening in Xinjiang is real. You know, IJOP, which is a, um, a predictive policing platform that vacuums up a bunch of data is real. You know, these things are real. And, and I think it's important to always leave the possibility open that the Chinese government might actually succeed at what they're saying their aim is. Maybe they won't, but maybe they will. And it's important to remember that that's a possibility. Yeah. So D Darren, your thoughts, I mean, usually these are even the most sensationalist reporting has some sort of grain of truth in this area. Um, but how do you yourself look at um, reporting on like, like as Bethany was saying, aspirational programs where, you know, maybe it's not working right now. Like obviously DCEP, uh, the digital currency is not where they want it to be, but clearly like they have, they'd like it to be a lot further along. Like how do you kind of look at stuff like that? Oh, you're still on mute. There you go. Um, so um, let's see. Yeah, I think one of the issues here is that in reporting, there's kind of a lack of nuance in how things are described. And so we take pilot programs or things that are really at the what we see as the leading edge of, of surveillance as normative, when in fact, it's actually happening in a, in a pretty small location and in a targeted way. And Xinjiang is, is, is a unique case in China in terms of the level of policing, the checkpoint systems, um, and some of those other things. Um, the densities are, 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 are um, at a different scale in, in Xinjiang. It's not to say that the smart policing, smart city systems are not in place in other places in China, um, but it's, we, we should keep that in mind that there's, there's differences as well. Algorithmic systems are limited by the data set that they're working on. Um, so, you know, when digital forensics tools are used to plug into someone's phone, they're looking for like 50 to 70,000 different markers of Islamic religious political activity. 
you know, there's many other markers that aren't going to be assessed by that system. So, you know, 70,000 is a lot, but it's not comprehensive. Um, I think we have to think about it in the same way that we think about like virus scan software you might use on your phone, on your computer. Uh, like it's going to catch a lot of viruses, but it's also going to miss some too. So there's its outsides to these systems, even if they are, you know, really, you know, targeting people in really, um, in really fairly comprehensive ways. Um, so my sense is that you need to really look at, you know, the evidence that's being provided in reports, if it's policy documents, if it's coming from industry, um, and, you know, see what the capacities are that, are that are being described by these industry figures and then try to test them if you can. But, you know, there's limits to what we can do because there's a lot of opacities in these systems. The state isn't really giving us access to these things. Companies are not doing it either. Um, at the end of the day, though, these things are real, like Bethany is saying. Um, they're just, I think, being used in, in, in precise ways and in, in particular locations. And so we need we can't think about China as this, you know, one homogenous space where all of this stuff is happening simultaneously. It's it's happening in particular places. Yeah, well, if you're listening, a cheat sheet would be to follow the three speakers here. They're very um, discerning, and I think that would help you a lot. Uh, so it also sounds like, you know, a lot of things you hear about are happening. It's just a matter of how far along are they? And, you know, how is the government able, you know, wh where are they in their implementation phase? Um, I think the next thing I want to talk about is this idea of like AI. Um, so obviously, we're talking here about specific AI, you know, we don't have general AI, but um, it's a huge buzzword, but it's also a massive global industry. And clearly, like when we talk about big data analytics, um, you have all described that the Chinese government is doing this to pursue social engineering. Why, what, what are, why, why do you think that the AI industry does not touch the Uyghur issue or does not include it? Um, I'll give you an example, uh, a, Center out of Stanford released a 220-page report on the state of global AI in February. The word Uyghur was not in the report, not a single time. What, what, is this like a conscious thing? Is it unconscious? Uh, why don't we actually just start with you, Darren, and then we'll go, we'll go backwards, back through Bethany and, and Mega. I think Xinjiang seems really far away, and it's hard to get very, like, really clear on the ground evidence. It seems it's politicized at this point, so I think that's something that people want to steer clear from. China is a huge market for a lot of US-based tech firms, and they want to maintain those relationships. Um, I've been working with Intercept recently on, on reports related to Oracle, um, which is working in China to support public security bureaus um, and others. Um, and you know they're pushing back against these, these, these systems. I think there's also, you know, what's happening in Xinjiang is, is couched as counterterrorism. And a lot of these firms are working for the government, um, and they're doing work that's similar to you know what a company like Palantir is doing in the U.S. Um, and because it's linked up to the government, and it feels as though it's connected to counterterrorism, maybe the ethicists think as though it's it's actually you know a, a valid use of technology, um, it, it, or or that's how they're excusing it. I know in China that's how they talk about it or think about it. Um, I don't know that. A lot of a lot of ethics groups are really there to kind of sign off on what the companies actually yeah. already do, and so I think that's that's part of what's in play here. So you've identified that maybe or probably it's it's this kind of age old uh, conflict between calling it as it is and needing to kind of hold back a little bit to be able to continue to do work with people. Um, so Bethany, what are your thoughts on this? Like, what, what why 
you know, why, why is the AI industry ignoring it? Like you see these huge reports on AI and ethics conferences, and there's just nothing on the subject when it obviously by fact is just the largest implementation of uh, big data analytics on a population. What, what is your opinion on why this is not touched on? And, and, you know, is that a problem? Yeah. Okay. So I don't know about the AI industry as a whole. I just, this is a data point that I did not know until you just said it, that they, that they have reports with them into the Uyghurs. So I can't like, I can't comment on that specific phenomenon. Um, but like Darren, I can, I can say that, you know, the Chinese government has gotten very, 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 very good at communicating to um, any company or government or institution that wants to do business inside of China or have access to anything inside of China, its markets, its people, its institutions, its natural resources, whatever, um, that they need to tow the you know, Chinese Communist Party lines. Everybody who's anybody or just everybody who has any kind of business in China who's dependent on it for their revenues, every single person knows that you can't talk about Xinjiang, that you can't support the Dalai Lama, that you can't support the Hong Kong protests, and that you can't you know, uh, support Taiwan independence. The Chinese government has been very, very good at communicating that message and at punishing people who disobey with that, who disobey that. I cannot speak to the AI industry specifically. I don't know if there has been a specific calculus about whether or not to mention uh, what is happening in Xinjiang. And I think that, you know, the, why, do, why do governments censor? Why do they suppress information? Because it works. And, you know, with, with Xinjiang, why can't, why don't we have like amazing, you know, 500 page reports about how AI is being used because we know almost we know very little we, we, we see outlines of it, you know, with the, the trove of government documents that I was working with at ICIJ, we actually had four classified intelligence bulletins directly related to IJOP, which is the pre crime platform there that showed that, you know, the, how it worked behind the scenes. This is and, and that those four documents like doubled our knowledge of that particular platform. Now there's been a lot more um, reporting um, about there's been some more leaked lists, the Caracax list and the Oxu list and um, and more personal like testimonies of people who were detained through that particular platform. But nobody that I know of has like the back end, like, you know, here's like how it actually works here. Are the algorithm, I don't even, you know, I'm not a AI person. I don't operate that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't know exactly what mm -hmm. they have, but like no one has that stuff. So it's, I think it's probably hard to integrate that into conversations that are being held by companies that are much more open about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And they're sharing their code. Maybe I don't, you know, so it's, it's just, I think it's hard. You're, you're almost talking about different things almost. Yeah. So, Mega, I'll give you an example. Uh, there's an organization called the Partnership on AI, which, of course, claims to kind of be tackling all the big issues when it comes to ethics and AI. And until last year, Baidu was one of their funding partners. Right. So, you know, uh, at, you know, until then, they 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 did not touch China. And there was a big question of, you know, what, what's happening here? Um, obviously, also, again, this this these, this report out of Stanford, which was just kind of shocking in terms of how it ignored this issue. I mean, what, what can be done here? Is it more of like a, it, we just need more dialogue uh, in, in the space or, 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 you know, what, what is your opinion on how this can kind of be rectified a little bit? Yeah. Um, obviously I don't want to speculate on the motivations of anyone who wrote either report, but um, I would say like 
I mean, there, yeah, there is something obviously going on with conflict of interest and companies in China, as Bethany pointed out. But I, I think like even aside from that, if you look at the kind of broader community of people that are talking about AI and ethics, um, I think there's some other dynamics that have sort of led to this. Um, and I'm going to just speak in generalities here and speak uh, just based on my own personal experience as a reporter that's covered some of this. Um, it's not going to be true in all situations, but um, in general, I think there's kind of two schools of thought about AI and like how to how society should should approach AI from an kind of an ethical framework and there's there's sort of like one group of people that would say you know you AI is actually okay but these tools should be equitable they should be created in a way that does not discriminate against women against people of color and i think that that probably makes sense in some places if for instance if you're if you're in Europe if you're in some parts of the United States like um and you're you're you you think that these tools have a kind of utility for security or you know other other motivations but you um and you you sort of accept that they're going to be used in the society but you don't want them to be discriminatory but to have this point of view you essentially have to accept that both the companies and uh, authorities are using tools in good faith in the first place. And that is not true in a lot of places, right? Um, you know, in, in the developed world, in the developing world, um, you know, we're talking today about Xinjiang. This is, this is a situation where the government has an articulated policy of discrimination against ethnic minorities. Like, you know, this is probably the most clear cut example of that, that I can think of, you know, in the world today. Um, so in, in that, that context, like this whole discussion about ethics and AI and how to build these tools ethically, it's almost like it's it's like not the discussion that we should be having because even if the tools are, are built ethically, like the 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 idea is that discriminating against people in this type of situation is is the point. It's the point of the whole thing. So I think right. that's sort of one of the issues. It's like people that are thinking seriously about these problems, they're not necessarily thinking about it in kind of very extreme contexts like this, where there is already a policy of, of like systematic discrimination. Um, and I think that's sort of one, like kind of the disconnect. It's like, um, you know, there, there's of course like a whole group of other people um, that favor abolition that don't think there should be facial recognition used by law enforcement anywhere. Um, I think that's a different perspective. I think the counter argument to that is that if the tech exists, it's going to be used regardless. Um, it's it's a tough problem, but I think when you say that like you know communication is important, I think that is really key. I don't think that this is just you know ethicists sitting at big multinationals with business in China that are dealing with these conflict of interest situations. And that's why um, it's not being raised enough. I genuinely think it's because a lot of people that are working on AI and ethics are concentrated in the US and Europe. And they're just yeah. not that plugged in to all of these other problems that communities in the global South are experiencing. And I think that's that's really um, yeah, I, an issue. And it, I, the community needs to overcome that. I actually agree with you because I, I, I pointed out about a year ago, some other report um, and they were like very apologetic and they basically were like, oh my God, we just didn't think about it basically. Yeah. So <laughs> that's why I think there might be a usefulness in having more of a dialogue. For sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, it's difficult to argue that Big data analysis is good for civil liberties. It's not easy. It's not an easy argument. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of us think it's just uh, incumbent upon narratives of uh, do more encryption, you know, feed less data to the surveillance state. I mean, that's just one way to think about it. Um, interested to hear, uh, uh, I want to get into the um, 
kind of the internationalization of this. But first, I'd like to hear from Darren on uh, the background here in terms of um, like the effects, any, any thoughts he has on how the West or the United States and its policies of uh, building up a bigger surveillance state, you know, with the excuse of fighting terrorism after 9-11, you know, and the sort of war on terror. How did that affect the Chinese government? Um, you know, did it give them different sort of excuses or ideas? Or, you know, can you talk us through a little bit of that through the 2008 Olympics and then kind of where we are now? Sure. So the discourse of terrorism entered China for the first time around a month after September 11th. That's when the state first began to talk about Uyghurs as terrorists. Prior to that, they had described them instead as separatists. You know, if there was a violent incident, they, they would call them separatists. Um, but it took some time, I think, for them to really, you know, mobilize in, in sort of counterterrorism policing as such. That would actually, you know, build on counterterrorism tactics. Um, and I think we should really think about 2007 as an important year, which is when the Petraeus Doctrine was published, which is counterinsurgency theory or COIN um, that calls for full spectrum intelligence, um, breaking the social network of the insurgent population, and then winning their hearts and minds. Those are kind of the three poles. Um, and in China, the, you know, they picked up on that doctrine pretty quickly. It's actually now the normative mili in military theory around the world counterinsurgency theory is normative, really. Um, and it's part of the infor informationalization that has been mentioned earlier is, you know, informa informationalization of warfare. Um, in 2013 and 14, uh, there was incidents in Beijing and Kunming, a, a train station attack carried out by Uyghurs that was described as China's 9-11. Um, and Within a month or so after that incident, um, major firms like the like Alibaba and iFlyTech, which does voice recognition, um, published reports that they were going to work with public security to do the same things that that Google and Amazon and others in the U.S. were doing to support the U.S. counterterrorism efforts, um, because you know China now had had a 9/11 incident. That's how it was, they were thinking about it, and and they needed to do the same kind of data analytics. And they talked about how they were going to you know uh, surveil Uyghur speech online, uh, all activities, movement, you know, all of those sorts of things. I think it took some time still for them to build those tools, um, but that's really I think where we see the start of the People's War on Terror and this real ramping up of of technological surveillance. Um, so and there's lots of direct linkages in how they're thinking in the policing science. They talk about reading prevent literature, which is coming from the UK. They translated books. They invited UK experts to Xinjiang to help them in 2016 and 17 to think about how to do counterinsurgency or, or wow. violent extremism. Um, so they, they think that they're doing the same thing as the UK or the US. They're just doing it better. Um, they're, you know, you know, they've built more camps um, and they've, you know, given well, a, a way to to you know find a new space in the economy by by putting them into into forced labor you know, factories no I, that's a fascinating part of your work and i i appreciate that and it really helps us understand that the way we run our own countries has a big impact uh on on, on the chinese government um what's also your thought darren on uh we're starting to see some of these like um uh, surveys or polls i mean who knows how accurate they are of um uh, the, the FT will often report on these things, but basically like surveys or polls of Chinese uh, citizens saying that they, they're like more in favor of data privacy. I mean, what is your take on this? Is this sort of a, uh, is this real? Is this like a real phenomenon where, where citizens are 
really, really actually concerned about this due to like breaches and things like that. And, and how does that, is that flustering what the government wants to do here? I mean, I realize we're taking this out of Xinjiang for a second, but but what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, I think you can think about it as like that there's three buckets or three lights when it comes to ethics in China. This is something that I think Sam Sachs and others have talked about, um, where when it comes to consumer protections, like that's something where they can, where, where, where citizens can have a voice and say, we don't want, we don't want these big companies taking our data from us. Um, when it comes to partnerships between the government and, and those corporations that are doing, you know, assisting in policing in, in other cities in China, there you can also have a little bit of dialogue. But when it comes to Xinjiang, I don't think that there's any space at all for dialogue. That's like the red light zone. Um, you can't you can't have a conversation about that at all. And so I think when we see people pushing back against face recognition in places like Beijing, they're really thinking of, thinking about it from a like a protected citizen middle class consumer perspective rather than you know a vulnerable population that has you know no civil or human rights really uh, you know permitted for them mega do you have thoughts on this You know, it's it's tough. Like, obviously, doing surveys um, in a place with a control as controlled of an information environment as China is going to be uh, problematic. But I think just sort of anecdotally, um, it it does make sense to me. There's a researcher in Germany called um, Genia Koska who's done a, uh, a number of kind of uh, studies about this. Um, she's done some polling that um, that has showed that um, you know people really do want greater privacy rights. Um, but they're sort of they're not as skeptical of things like the social credit system, for instance, as um, you know people might um, expect. Um, the, the other kind of data point that springs to mind immediately is uh, the C the CEO of Baidu, uh, Robin Lee, um, made I think he made like a remark or something, essentially saying that there was something cultural about Chinese people that they don't you know need or want privacy rights in the same way as like you know maybe westerners and there was like this huge backlash on chinese social media to that statement and like from time to time i see these kind of like dumb op-eds about you know with people saying that you know chinese people don't care about privacy rights and i think like you know just the the issue there is like you first of all you can't generalize about a billion plus people feeling one way or another about really anything and the second thing is i don't think chinese consumers are really that different from consumers in the west about this if you pull people in the west they'll also say like I, yeah I, of course i really value digital privacy the, the question then is like sort of what avenues do they actually have to affect change in that direction to push uh, greater regulation on corporations, and then also what's sort of the political will, what's the, like the willingness of people to do that. Um, I think privacy is, uh, no matter where you are, digital privacy, it's, um, you know, it's it's cost benefit. There is a trade-off. Um, in China, I think the trade-off is convenience. Um, I think giving up things like data about consumption and stuff like that, uh, people are, are sometimes willing to trade that for a greater degree of convenience. And um, I think that you know, to me, like the only way that that would change is if there's sort of a greater degree of transparency about how companies and also government institutions, um, you know, are are collecting data about people. Um, Bethany, uh, you know, I, I once I I was interviewing a, a Uyghur a friend of mine once, and he was basically like, "Look, do you think they're going to stop here? Obviously, they're going to expand what they're doing with my people to to other parts of China and then other other countries in the region. What what are your thoughts on the internationalization of what's happening in Xinjiang, um, and you know the broader like you know let's say status of of the way that the Chinese government is 
kind of trying to wrest some of that control away from the U.S. in terms of uh, global economic dominance, in terms of even maybe even trying to recreate the uh, uh, the petrodollar recycling uh, mechanism by basically trying to denominate oil uh, imports in yuan and then having those countries buy Chinese surveillance technology with with the yuan. I mean, what what are your thoughts on on how this is all playing out? Sure. So in inside of China, um, I don't necessarily see this like the the severity of what's happening in Xinjiang being applied to other ethnic groups. I mean, it's gotten worse for everybody, everybody in China in terms of you know surveillance and repression, and it's gotten way worse for other ethnic minorities. Uh, you know, the, Mo the Mongolians. Um, you know, like. They're, what, did they, what did they ever? It was the last time they caused any trouble, you know. But they, their um, uh, bilingual education has been taken away now in the Mongolia's, uh, the inner inner Mongolia um, autonomous region. And Hui Muslims, another Muslim ethnic group, uh, and also other, you know, there's there's twelve Muslim ethnic groups in China. Uyghurs are just one, uh, and there's the Hui. Those are the two largest, and there's a number of others. But the Hui Muslims have traditionally, from the Chinese government's perspective, been more. Um, reliably loyal. Again, this is from the CCP's perspective, but even they are facing some similar problems. Um, and, you know, Christians and Tibetans, it's, it's gotten harder for everyone, but I don't see this, the mass internment camps, you know, becoming something that swallows up the, the rest of, of mainland. What is absolutely happening in China has already made significant progress with this, is that uh, the Chinese government has, has eroded institutionalized human rights protections in the international sphere. So for example, the, the United Nations. One of the reasons the United Nations exists um, is in order to you know, prevent terrible mass atrocities like what happened during World War II. This is one of the reasons it exists. And when it comes to Xinjiang, it is absolutely failing. The UN Secretary General has never condemned what is happening in Xinjiang. The UN Secretary General regularly condemns, you know, US police violence, as he should. But, you know, it's just a, a massive gap. And the reason for that is that China has learned how to turn its massive economic heft into direct geopolitical power, and it uses that coercively um, to, you know, to both in both a positive and a negative way to say, "Look, you, you're on my team. You sign up for the Belt and Road. We'll give you all these loans. We'll give you all this other stuff, but you have to support me in in what I do." Uh, in, in, in international institutions and on the international stage. And the, a really great, perfect example of this is last year, there were two warring letters that were uh, floating around in the UN Human Rights Council. And one of them was denouncing uh, China's policies in Xinjiang. And one of them was supporting China's policies in Xinjiang. And the, the letter that was denouncing them, uh, nobody on that, I think basically no country that signed that had also signed onto China's Belt and Road. And on the flip side, the, the letter of countries supporting China's policies, basically every single one of them had signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative or had some kind of memorandum of understanding or something like that. It was it's very stark. Um, and so they have effectively leveraged, you know, their growing diplomatic and economic prominence to um, make it much more difficult for the very organizations that exist in order to denounce genocide to, to, do, to carry out their function. And this is not just to China's benefit. You know, this uh, China's policy or its, its, plat its main foreign policy platform is the, the principle of non-interference, which, I mean, they're very hypocritical. They absolutely do interfere. But what they mean by that is 
that there, you know, there shouldn't be pressure placed on governments if they want to kill their own people. Basically, the CCP wants a world in which governments can do anything they want to their own people. And that because that's what the Chinese government wants to do for itself. Um, and that's that's how they're they are changing the world to make that more possible. They're also um, exporting, uh, as you have mentioned, various kinds of surveillance technologies and equipment. And they're doing that in a variety of ways through the Belt and Road. They're also, you know, through through 5G um, you know, making it, and there, you know, state-owned enterprises and private companies will come in and just, you know, build from the ground up. Like I think it was in Venezuela where they, they, they basically built a whole surveillance center for like Venezuela security services or something, and they're very happy to do that. For you know, for China, it's win-win. Um, it helps you know strengthen their ties and strength strengthen their their ties to authoritarian countries, strengthen those authoritarian governments because China relates very well to authoritarian governments and can have close ties with them. Um, weakens the West's ability to push back against authoritarian countries and also makes China money and makes them, uh, you know, even more of a global leader in technology. And China is leveraging its dominance in technology increasingly to cement that dominance and to um, to carry that over into the next generation. So, for example, by, you know, trying to uh, by, by putting forward um, standards in standard setting, you know, international standard setting bodies and technology, they're very explicitly doing that when it comes to um, you know, AI and, and surveillance technologies. Could, could you also give us an update on, uh, of course, we're, we're well aware of how the Chinese government is, is sort of working with authoritarian regimes, um, but obviously its sale of surveillance tech and partnerships and telecoms was has been a heated debate in, in the heart of Europe uh, for the last several years. Bethany, what's your uh, sort of take on wh where we are now with, with, you know, are European countries kind of now firmly moving away or, or is there still... Or you know a really good um, chance that Chinese tech companies will, will will have a lot of infrastructure in Europe in the coming years. Yeah, so I'll pass the baton to, to Mega on this in a little bit. I think she's probably a little bit more well positioned to answer with more specifics. But I'll just I can just generally speak about Huawei. So um, the U.S. has made a big push uh, under the Trump administration to try to get European partners, especially Five Eyes partners, um, but European partners to not use Huawei for five G. So it's a it's a fairly limited ask. It's not saying you must right now rip out all of your Huawei telecommunications equipment. It's not you. You cannot use any Chinese tech company for anything. It's pretty specific. Ask about Huawei and to some extent ZTE. And the Trump administration has had some success with that. So um, you know, the uh, Britain uh, originally, I think Boris Johnson was originally was like, oh yeah, we're going to allow Huawei into our five G networks, and then he made a U turn on that, uh, and then said, no, we're actually not going to do that. Um, uh, let's see who else. I should come up with a list. I mean, some people are going back and forth either way. I think in in the, the you know countries in Europe, so like Hungary, for example, which is like now the first non-democratic member of uh, the EU. Um, uh, it's you know very firmly in Huawei's camp. So there's there's a lot of work still to be done on this. Uh, I think it's been difficult for a lot of countries anywhere, but in Europe, to try to to to, to come to the realization. That this is a now issue. They can't. They can't keep kicking the can down the road. Uh, they have to. They have to probably bear, take some pain, take a hit right now. Because in the short run, they know everybody knows that if you try to, if you and, and China's made this again very explicit. If you don't allow Huawei into your networks, bad things are going to happen to your economy because China will will shut out whatever. They, I mean, China has made explicit threats. When when uh, Boris Johnson said that they were going to not allow Huawei into the five G networks, I think I forget who it was specifically. It might have been the Chinese ambassador to the UK, but maybe not. 
someone raised, some Chinese person or outlet raised the issue of like maybe China's not going to fund these, um, you know, the nuclear energy plants that we were planning on building for you, which like I'm not really sure why you'd want China to build your nuclear energy plants anyway. But with that, I'll kick it over to Mega. Yeah, Mega, I mean, sounds like uh, for a country whose currency really only, you know, accounts for 3% or so of global uh, foreign exchange reserves or 3% or so of trade that it's, it's exercising an extremely exaggerated uh, role here, especially in Europe. And what, what's your take on, you know, wither uh, China in, in Europe right now? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't looked at this in particular. So I really, my understanding is probably at the level of a, of a newsreader. But I do think that my impression is during the Trump administration in particular, um, a lot of European governments got the impression that it, it was like, they were sort. They sort of felt caught between the influence of the U.S. and Chinese, uh, sorry, Chinese investment and maintaining kind of good relations with China. And um, I think that that is sort of we're we're starting to see more European economies take sort of stronger measures. Like you know, in particular, in the past couple of weeks, like we've seen, um, you know, the Dutch Parliament. Um, maybe it was longer ago than that, but the Dutch Parliament uh, declare what's happening in Xinjiang a genocide, for instance. Um, just today, the UK uh, in the UK, the House of Commons uh, made the same declaration, which is really a historic thing to happen here. Um, this is something that would have been pretty hard to imagine um, in the UK a few years ago. Um, you know, back when the UK was very vocal about pursuing strong economic relations um, and strong trade relations with China. Um, so I think it, it shows kind of how, um, like, that, like how that balance has started to shift. Um, I think there, there are sort of a number of things uh, driving it, but you know, one thing that hasn't been mentioned yet is sort of the, the deteriorating environment for uh, foreign businesses in China. Um, I think one of the reasons that China was able to cultivate so many allies um, or, or, yeah, like partners um, early on is because, um, you know, of the, the rise of the Chinese consumer class and uh, what a great market that presented for lots of international businesses. But I think policies that went on to champion, um, you know, domestic industry, um, you know, sort of shut out a lot of uh, those opportunities for foreign companies. Um, so the kind of like, um, I think the, there, there started to like the kind of um, the, the constituency for stronger economic relations with China um, started to, to wane a bit. Um, the, the kind of quintessential historical example of this is, is Norway. Um, after Liu Xiaobo was awarded the, uh, the Nobel Prize for Peace, um, the Chinese government retaliated in a few ways, like, you know, one by sort of cutting off uh, Norwegian diplomats from having routine meetings with their counterparts in China. And then also more notably by, um, you know, stifling the fish trade between Norway and China. Um, so that it's not like Norway is like heavily dependent on China to sell its fish. But, um, you know, it's, it shows that um, this is a government that's sort of willing to take retaliatory measures um, against companies when uh, political events don't go the way that it favors. Um, and I think that that is that kind of message um, has has been sent in Europe. And I think a lot of um, European economies are, are, are parsing sort of how to grapple with that. Um, Darren, I, uh, we're at a, you know, a moment here where, uh, you know, we have the Olympics coming up. Uh, some people are calling it the genocide Olympics. Um, how do you square, uh, if you're coming from like an anti-war perspective, right, ideologically, um, you know, let's say you're, you're, very anti-conflict, uh, you wanna see trade among nations, dialogue. 
I mean, how do you deal with the Uyghur genocide? Uh, like as someone who's like anti-war, as someone who does not want to see conflict between China and the United States, um, as someone who wants to see athletes come together. I mean, what is the appropriate response from someone who, who, who you know, has a firm intellectual uh, ideological basis in the, the anti-war camp as we look at, towards the next year or two? Hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think like the the most effective or ultimately what needs to happen in order to transform or change what's happening in China is probably less punitive measures, you know, which are, those are important, I think, as well. And it's important that we, you know, as consumers don't participate in forced labor, um, tech companies should not be supplying surveillance and all of those things. So, you know, cutting those ties, I think, is necessary. But the important thing here is really to communicate with with Chinese folks, with, with people in China. Um, and I see the, the Olympics as sort of a, a moment where that communication can really happen at a larger scale. So I think in China, there's still, at this point, not enough real knowledge about what's happening in, in, in Xinjiang, what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, it's probably at its the awareness of something happening in Xinjiang is probably at its highest point right now because of the cotton issue. Um, yeah, everyone knows that, you know, H&M has stopped using Xinjiang cotton and we should now boycott H&M because they, they hate Xinjiang cotton and, and want to keep China down or something. That's the sort of messaging that they're hearing. Um, but many people in China are, you know, critical and, and, and aware of the way their media shapes stories that support state narratives. And I think, as people hear more and more about what's happening there in Xinjiang, they'll begin to change their perspectives. I was part of a Clubhouse um, meeting recently. Clubhouse is an app on, on social media that had a number of people from Xinjiang and, and in China in this space where we were discussing the camps in Xinjiang. Um, and people in Beijing were saying stuff like, you know, at first I didn't believe the stories. Um, I thought it was just Western propaganda, but the more I heard about it and the more I did my own research with my own community, the more I started to change my perspective. And if I can change, anyone can change. Um, and so I think those are the sorts of stories that give me a little bit of hope that there can be a, a move back, uh, a pushback against this system. You know, if you're anti-war, you should be anti-Islamophobia in any context. Um, you should be wanting to see an end to endless war, to see a, an end to the global war on terror. And you should be thinking from the position of the oppressed, no matter where they are. Um, and so, you know, someone who's in that position should be thinking from that perspective when it comes to the, uh, the Olympics as well. So would you say that you're more on the side of um, maybe we should ask Airbnb, like, why it's a sponsor of the Olympics and have, like, adult conversations about that? Or is it more like the Jeffrey Sachs point of view of whatever the the us is also evil and you guys should just forget about what's happening like you're these are two very divergent uh dialogues that are starting to emerge here right like what's your take on that i think we shouldn't make false equivalence between what's happening in the us and what's happening in china where there's an entire colonized population of people that's being targeted with a, a campaign to transform them and to eliminate significant aspects of who they are as a people um What's happening at the southern border of the U.S. is 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 and was horrific. Um, there's camps there as well. We're using surveillance tools there too. You know, race racism is a huge problem in the United States, and and we need to be anti you know actively anti-racist. Um, but it's it's happening at a different scale, and we should be cognizant of that. And Jeffrey Sachs should be cognizant of that as well. Um, 
So yes, I'm more in favor of, of you know, asking Airbnb why they're supporting the Olympics um, and why they haven't taken a stance on this than I am in supporting Jeffrey Sachs. Can I, can I jump yeah, in Matt, on that? Go ahead, Bethany. I have, a, I have a, how I always think in my head when someone like Jeffrey Sachs or literally anybody is like, oh, well, the U.S. has done bad things too. My response to that is always, yes, we have. And that's why you should listen to us when we say that what's happening here is bad. Because like, for example, the U.S., you know, we had slavery for 300 years and we, you know, we committed a genocide against Native Americans. And we feel those scars in our society even today. And we're reckoning with that even today. And if, you know, uh, 150 years ago or 300 years ago, other countries had joined together to stop slavery in America, I would be grateful for that. And that's the perspective that I bring to, to Xinjiang. It's because the, U has, the U.S. has such a bad history that American people are so qualified to say, you're going to regret this. Stop this. It's going to hurt you for generations. So that's, I think, an actually very powerful, powerful perspective that we have. And in addition, you know, to say, well, you can't, you know, criticize us because you have bad things. Like, my goal is not a scoreboard. You know, I'm not trying to be like, oh, we better than you. No, my, my goal is to stop bad things. And I want to stop the bad things in the US. And I want to stop the bad things in China, too. And I, I don't really get the, you know, I think Jeff, Jeffrey Sachs is engaging in, uh, you know, a kind of self-justification. And that's what most of this whataboutism is. It's not actually in search of justice in the U.S. or anywhere else. It's just trying to shut down criticism. And that's, that's all that it is. And on the, on, the, on the Olympics, I mean, I think the best and the only, I mean, there is not going to be a boycott. It is not going to be moved. But there could be a diplomatic boycott. And to me, that is best of both worlds because you still get the athlete interaction, but you don't get the... Um, uh, you don't get the affirmation of countries sending uh, official delegations. You know, you get the shame, but you still get like the sports, you know. So I think that's really important. And it's also going to be incredibly important to have a ton of reporting on who's sponsoring what. Are those uniforms made by slave labor? Like literally is the thing we're seeing on NBC, just like things made by slave labor, you know? Do, we need to know that. And if at the opening ceremonies they have happy dancing Uyghurs, you know, we need to have really, really strong reporting and broadcasting about exactly what it is that we're seeing. Yeah, uh, Mega, uh, I, I, I had the opportunity to go to the Apartheid Museum last time I was in uh, Johannesburg and uh, you know, obviously the IOC's uh, expulsion of the apartheid regime is very important. Um, what, what, what are you seeing maybe, you know, in that, in that space of, you know, are there, are there potentially things that, that are going to happen in the coming uh, years uh, with regard to potentially, you know, very peacefully, but culturally pressuring China uh, in ways that we have done, we have seen in the past, or, or do you think that's never going to happen? They have too much economic power. Um, you're you're speaking in the context of the Olympics or just generally the Olympics, any sort of internet, you know, international sporting, uh, you know, or, or music yeah. or any sort of like international competition, things like that, that 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 you know that organizers could expel them and not hurt anybody, like just just yeah. feelings, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think with the Olympics, there's a specific issue that's happening now, which is that the IOC has been sort of explicitly complimentary of the Chinese government. It's not just like, I think the argument that they've made publicly is that it's, uh, you know, this is uh, like the Olympics are not a political event. They should not depend on any country's politics and so forth. Obviously, the example that 
you just raised like South Africa is, is a great example of how the Olympics, you know, does have a component of geopolitics to it. Um, and yeah, and like, uh, and why it matters, uh, to, you know, to give a particular country a platform. Um, you know, in in private, con I, I just happen to know about this because we we've just published a story about it. But uh, in you know, in private conversations with activists from China, not just from Xinjiang, but from different parts of China, working on kind of different issues around human rights. Um, you know, IOC officials sort of explicitly said, uh, you know, we China has a really great record on the environment, and having the Olympics in Beijing in 2008 uh, resulted in blue skies in Beijing, which is true. Um, you know, I think that statements like these uh, kind of suggest that officials at the IOC who are making these decisions are not necessarily um, apolitical; that they do have a point of view on this, um, and. You know, the thing that was to me was sort of remarkable about this is that all of the activists that are in these conversations are people who are have been sort of directly impacted by human rights abuses there. Um, you know, people who have family members that are in mass internment camps, um, you know, uh, there was a prominent lawyer who was on the call who was detained during the 2008 Olympics and was, um, you know, was subject to torture in police custody. Um, you know, these are people who have sort of strong uh, personal experiences of, um, of abuses in the system. And um, I, they felt very strongly that they weren't being heard by this. So because of this, the, this kind of group of activists that the kind of uh, growing group of like, I think, uh, several hundred now individual activists and uh, NGOs and human rights groups that are advocating, uh, you know, for the IOC that were initially advocating for the IOC to not host the Olympics in China um, have now moved on to asking various countries to boycott. This is still very much an open discussion in the United States. There's kind of a diversity of views even within, I think, even within both parties. There are, um, I've seen, you know, Republican lawmakers and former officials say, you know, actually like a boycott makes sense because the gravity of the human rights abuses is so strong. And then I've seen others saying, uh, you know, actually this this is only going to penalize the athletes and this isn't necessarily the way forward. I think there's a there's kind of like a number of different like policy directions that this could go in. It depends, of course, also on what um, other countries and other athletes decide to do. But um, I think we still have like quite a bit of, of road, but, uh, you know, between now and um, and the game. So um, I'll be interested to see uh, like you know, I, I think it depends on how the situation in China continues to evolve and then also like how, um, you know, domestic politics in a number of these countries evolves as well. Darren, uh, you know, obviously the similarities between the 1936 Olympics uh, in Nazi Germany are, are strong just in terms of the, the activity, of the concentration camps. Uh, obviously, the, they're much more advanced in, in China today than they were at that point in Germany. Um, but just the way the world handled it, the, there was a big debate over whether we should go, whether we should not go. Should we boycott? Should we not boycott? Um, there was the additional uh, race factor, uh, which ended up being very, uh, you know, had a huge impact on the world uh, to see athletes win who, you know, the, the, the German government did not want to win. Um, what are your, you know, have you thought about this? And, you know, what, do, you know, you were mentioning that this might actually be an, an opportunity, maybe even to shed some light on certain things. Like what, what, what do you think? Is there anything positive that could come out of this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the the sort of thing that Bethany was just mentioning about that you get that you could have the both the shame and the games at the same time. Um, you know, that I think could 
have an effect in terms of messaging to the general public in China and to people around the world. I mean, this is something where the, the world's focus is going to be centered on Beijing. Um, and when it comes to you know building alliances with you know Muslim majority states on this issue, with with states in the developing world that so far have really supported the Chinese government, I think this could be an opportunity, depending where they tune in uh, to the games, for them to receive a new or different message about what's happening to the Uyghurs. Um, so I would like to see, like Bethany's mentioning, you know, media reporting that that really highlights you know the the system as as the games go on if they do go on so maybe we'll get some athletes uh willing to for example say certain things or raise certain flags or images when they win and and in a way that is difficult for the chinese government to prevent its own population from seeing i guess is what one possible possibility here huh yeah i think that's a great idea Um, Okay, so we're going to take a couple questions. Uh, These will just be for the for you all. I mean, someone should just jump in. Um, How is the Chinese information technology being used to phase uh, out use of the Uyghur language from the internet? Uh, I don't know if maybe that's a Darren question, but go ahead. Sure. Um, Well, I don't know that it is like phasing it out completely. What we're seeing is that Uyghur media, if it's video, for instance, must be accompanied now with Chinese. So it it has Chinese subtitles if it's in Uyghur language. So there's like a simultaneity that's happening there with, you know, if something is in Uyghur, it has to also have Chinese component. I think the censorship system, the translation between Uyghur and Chinese is much stronger. We're seeing a lot less original Uyghur content and instead a lot of translations of things that first appeared in Chinese. Um, and then there's a kind of general sort of self-censorship that's happening as well, where media producers that before might have been, you know, starting their own websites or posting things, I've just stopped doing that because they're they're worried about getting in trouble. So most of what people are posting online, um, from what I'm seeing, is is a lot of you know state propaganda basically. They're performing a kind of political loyalty online. Could you also? I I feel like we just we it would be worth it to just mention this given that we have you here. Could you also just briefly describe the the way that the 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 religion, the language, culture of of the Uyghur peoples being erased? I mean, could we could we just dwell on that for a second? Sure. I mean the the way that that's happening most significantly is in the education system. Um, the state has hired around 90,000. I don't know why 90,000 is, you know, same number for policing as teachers, but they've hired 90,000 or so politically loyal teachers. That's how they talk about it. Um, and around 500,000 children in in Xinjiang are in boarding schools, or residential boarding schools. This is according to the New York Times, um, and they're looking at you know state documents. Um, not clear that all 500,000 are Uyghur, but it's it's a lot of people that are in these boarding schools. Um, and what's happening in the schools is language is being taught to these children, uh, Mandarin, uh, Chinese which is, most of the teachers are being brought from other parts of China. Um, and so the children are effectively being taught to devalue their own language, devalue Uyghur cultural traditions and Islam and see them as lacking. Um, and I think you know, the parallels to residential schools for Native Americans is really, is really um, clear, or there's, there's just tons of resonances there. Um, it's part of the colonial process um, and part of the way that language is being eliminated among the next generation of Uyghurs. I don't. I think the the older generation, you know, that grew up speaking Uyghur and is now starting to learn Chinese, like they're they might get fluent in Chinese, but they're not going to forget their Uyghur language because um, that's that is their language. So it's the next generation, I think, that's really targeted. 
maybe a question from Mega. Um, uh, how to tackle the Chinese leverage in Muslim countries that are being used against the Uyghur? There are too many Muslim countries pushing the Chinese propaganda. Yeah, um, I mean, this is a tough one. I think that, um, you know, if, if, if all things were equal, um, like, if you, if you look at the, just particularly the Arab world for a second and look at kind of rates of sympathy for the Palestinian cause, like a lot of that comes from, um, you know, affinity on, on kind of different grounds, like cultural, religious, like all of those things. Um, you know, there's a world in which you would imagine that those populations would share the same affinity for Uyghur people in China. And, um, you know, it, it's possible that many people do. But the thing is, in, in many parts of the Muslim world, not everywhere, but many parts of the Muslim world, you have, um, you know, really, really strong censorship of the media and the kind of same issues that exist in China around uh, public opinion and, um, yeah, and like polling and stuff like that. Um, so I'll just give an example. Like um, I knew a journalist in Egypt who had a story in the works um, that was uh, a story about Uyghurs. It was uh, in, I think it was, it must've been Uyghurs in Egypt and the kind of uh, the issue of forced deportations back to China. He was going to publish it in a local newspaper. Story was immediately uh, had the kibosh put on it. Um, very similar story I heard um, from a journalist who was working in the UAE. Um, you know, in, in both of those situations, the journalist in question did not consider this to be a sensitive issue because it wasn't necessarily that sensitive in a domestic political context. But um, we know that Chinese embassies around the world uh, do call up news organizations and seek to pressure them um, in order to change negative content. Um, of course, it is up to the news organization to decide whether they're going to do that or not. But if you're in a country that, or in, in a society where there is already really strong censorship of news organizations, um, the incentives are to, um, you know, to kill the critical story, I think. And to me, this is a kind of a big part of why we haven't seen a lot of um, kind of like popular um, expressions of disapproval of the Chinese government's policy in Xinjiang, um, you know, in, in the Muslim world. I think it, you know, it, it's possible that this dissatisfaction exists on a large scale, but there's, there's just sort of no, there's not a great way to express it. And also people are sort of limited in the amount that they can gather information through their own media sources in their own language um, and those sorts of things. And um, yeah, and th that's not even talking about governments and like the role of governments. Obviously through the Belt and Road campaign um, and other economic engagements, the Chinese government has used um, you know, investment as a way to build diplomatic ties um, across the Muslim world. Um, the kind of uh, fluctuations in the health of Chinese ties with Turkey are a great example of this. Um, you know, I think that um, th this is why you see um, a, a lot of governments in the Muslim world like kind of failing to react um, in, the, you know, uh, with outrage to, um, to the Xinjiang situation in a way that people, you know, maybe might have expected a few years ago. Thank you. Uh, and Bethany, one for you. Uh, what do you make of the foreigners who've been sponsored by CCTV to create content on Chinese social media, especially as it relates to false narratives? Why do you think we're seeing a rise in these types of videos created by expats? Uh, I think there's a couple of different issues going on here. Um, and the most important one is that the Chinese government has is learning from the Russian model of online disinformation that um, a very effect, which is you know a very effective way to to promote these narratives is to go through gray zone actors or like people who aren't officially uh, connected to the to the state. And you know with Russia, they you know they will the Russian state will you know 
Russian-linked Twitter accounts and state media will amplify, you know, these narratives. So there'll be some think tank that no one's ever heard of that's, you know, pushing out all this stuff or whatever, uh, you know, various, various conspiracy theorists. And up until a couple of years ago, we didn't really see the Chinese government doing that at all. Uh, I think the Hong Kong protests is the first time that I really saw the Chinese government pursuing non-overt, so like covert online disinformation on any kind of large scale out, that aimed at people outside of mainland China. Uh, and then with coronavirus, there was a, a huge uh, like surge in various kinds of online disinformation that was being pushed by the Chinese government. And it's and we're now at like a third peak, if you will, just in the past couple of months, two to three months with Xinjiang. Huge, huge, huge push here. I would say the Chinese government now is the best they've ever been at, yeah. um, at amplifying stuff, at promoting it at and I, I think even at getting it started i'm not saying that like people are you know handing out like envelopes of cash but there's you know let's say that you're like some random blogger and you know you write something about xinjiang and then you, you suddenly see it getting all this traffic well if most of that traffic comes from inauthentic sources you know you're being amplified by by you know state accounts or something it doesn't matter you're still getting all this traffic and so there's yeah, this feedback that, loop that's very that's rewarding I, that's why i brought up sex because he's a huge upgrade over gray zone for them i mean <laughs> yes I mean, he's huge yeah. credibility, huge credibility. Right, right. I mean, even Gray Zone, though. Gray Zone, I mean, Gray Zone doesn't, isn't, doesn't have credibility among respectable people, but this is the internet. Who, who cares about respectability? You know, they can still, you know, harass people. Look, I mean, look at what's just happened to Vicky, uh, Vicky Shu in Australia. She's a Chinese-Australian journalist. And people have been, po like, posting these, like, very, like, carefully done, like, smear videos of her on YouTube that are, like, you know, that has gone viral in China and stuff that, you know, and she's done a lot of work on Xinjiang. She wrote a report about forced labor and the cotton industry there. All of this is just to say um, that, you know, we're, we're seeing this, you know, and I, I think the Chinese government is getting, um, they're seeing how effective this can be at muddying the waters. Uh, and you, you can't, they have, they are learning. I mean, four years ago, their response to anything was to just deny, 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 or then, you know, come out and have like the foreign ministry spokesperson, like read some super jilted, like, you know, something in the end. And they're just terrible at it. And they have gotten a lot better. And I think they've, they've been learning from Russia. Uh, I, I want to close with um, a theme that I think is, is important and, and should be talked about more. Uh, this morning we had an event, uh, HRF had an event with the leader of democratic Belarus, Gary Kasparov, Bill Browder, others. And we talked about Russia and the, um, the, the concern that was raised was that uh, the, the focus on um, climate uh, is something that uh, authoritarian regimes can uh, manipulate. Um, and, you know, as someone who wants to see a green earth, I mean, this is this is a difficult, uh, you know, area to to sort of try to figure out what, what the right thing to do is. And in the Chinese case, we have, of course, this thorny issue of solar. Right. And there's been a couple of really good reports that have come out lately some massive percentage of solar panels come, you know, one way or another, you know, through a supply chain that, that goes through, you know, potentially Xinjiang itself or, or certainly China. Um, you know, what are your thoughts? Anyone can jump in here. But, you know, was this like a do you think the Chinese government sort of is planning like they understand what's happening here and they realize they can they can kind of like get in there and, and create a lot of export uh, renewables stuff and that'll help them? Uh, kind of continue to shield themselves from international action? Are they trying to like play this? And and as people who care about the earth, but also humans, you know, how do we navigate this whole like climate versus human rights debate that's starting to unfold here? 
and, uh, and I'll just add that obviously the appointment of John Kerry is, is huge here, uh, you know, you know, versus the, you know, he's essentially, you know, as important as potentially the secretary of state, et cetera. I can just explain like the solar issue a little bit. Um, um, yeah, um, if it's helpful. Um, so like the issue with solar is that um, like solar is like a good example of, um, you know, like uh, like products that are necessary for like uh, like our modern way of life where parts of the supply chain are concentrated very heavily in China. There is a lot of products like that but um, solar panels to me are quite interesting because um, basically there's a component in solar panels called polysilicon. You need polysilicon for the most part to make solar panels. That's how most solar panels are made today. And um, a substantial part of, um, of the, the kind of polysilicon um, industry is concentrated in Xinjiang. So that's not um, the mining of the raw material, but it's basically like the concentration of this material into like little wafers, I think, um, if I'm explaining it correctly, right? So what's interesting about this is that Xinjiang is one of the last places in China where coal power is being used. So we're talking about a renewable um, energy source, but it's being made with coal anyway. Um, and um, on top of that, you have all of these concerns about forced labor um, and other abuses that are happening in the region, which has, uh, you know, and uh, all kind of the lack of transparency that comes with that. Um, so, for instance, if I am supposing I'm a solar panel maker somewhere else, right, and I don't want forced labor in my supply chain, the the best way for me to ensure that there's no forced labor in the supply chain is to actually go to a plant and start interviewing workers, right? Talking to workers. This is how people who do supply chain due diligence handle it, right? Um, so in a region like Xinjiang, you can't really do that um, because of the level of surveillance that um, you'll be under when interviewing workers. And then also because of the pressure that workers face um, to sell you kind of a good picture. And that's sort of what's problematic about it. To your question about, you know, was this sort of an intentional strategy? I have absolutely no idea, but I do think that, um, you know, governments and like like economies, I should say, that were he are, are heavily relying on some of these parts um, on like kind of the, the lower side of the supply chain um, that come from China. I don't think that anyone uh, a few years ago was thinking about supply chain diversity um, as, you know, as great of a security issue as is now being discussed. And I think the, the issue is like, if, if you're in the solar industry, like, how do you navigate that? You want to create a product that's going to be good for the earth, but you don't want to do it, um, you know, on the backs of abuses. Um, I think that it's a really tough problem. And there, there are a number of companies that are trying to address this. But, you know, I interviewed a number of solar manufacturers in reporting on this. And like, to be honest, like most of them would say, like, the solution to this is that consumers have to be willing to pay a little bit more to get a product that's not necessarily tainted by forced labor. I don't know if that's a realistic ask of consumers. Yeah. But it, it was telling to me that that was sort of the, the solution that, um, you know, a lot of these companies were able to come up with. Are, are there also like, um, well, there are, but could you color maybe even um, like which industries potentially are, are more heavy, more likely to be involved with actual forced labor versus versus more kind of like skilled labor where it, yeah. may, it probably isn't people who are in camps? Like what, what, what yeah. what's your breakdown there? 
Yeah. So forced labor, the whole forced labor picture is pretty complicated. And like, I think you guys probably have a whole separate event about this. So I'll try not to go on too long. But like, in short, there is, there is a component of forced labor that is literally detainees. Um, and like, we found evidence of this, um, you know, we're either being bused to factories, or they're working in factories that are actually in the camps. And there are other kind of forced labor related programs that are taking place in other parts of the region and then also in other parts of China. So you have sort of multiple streams of, la of labor that have been linked by researchers to forced labor, right? So it's already kind of a complicated picture. So like what kind of, uh, what kind of industries are these people working in? Um, you know, the way that researchers have tried to figure this out is by looking at participation in labor transfer programs and other kind of documentary evidence that forced labor is going on, ranging from like pictures of uh, Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities being bused to a particular place, um, you know, to news reports and press releases that are put out by the companies themselves. Um, also, you know, including interviews that have been done on the ground by journalists. Um, by and large, it appears that forced labor is mainly being used for like low on the value chain kind of functions. So just for me personally, I've primarily interviewed people who have said that they were involved in forced labor in the garment industry. Um, so this is like, you know, people that are sewing clothes. Um, I, I interviewed a woman who was actually ran a garment company um, before she was interned. And then while she was there, they found out that she had this skill and she became like, um, you know, she's, she sort of taught other um, detainees how to do that. Um, having said that, when I started report, reporting on solar, I kind of thought this is really specialized, right? So it's quite unlikely that um, there would be forced labor there. But I came to learn that even in a factory where you're doing something as specialized as, you know, making uh, polysilicone into, into wafers, there are still jobs that are kind of uh, don't require a lot of skills, you know, like things like, uh, you know, operating certain kinds of machinery, even things like, uh, you know, being a custodian and like cleaning the facility, being a security guard. There's uh, been reports in the media of of, uh, you know, people involved in forced labor in Xinjiang that were doing like security guard work and stuff like that. Um, so I think the whole picture is very murky. Um, a lot of scholars I know would argue that if you're an industry that has, uh, that whose supply chain is in Xinjiang, you can't, there's no way to be certain that um, yeah. it's completely free of And, of and is labor. your, in your mind, is the, is the forced labor piece, is that specific to Xinjiang or is that also in other provinces, like prevalent in other provinces as well? So I haven't particularly reported on in other uh, provinces, and um, yeah, you guys might have a, a better sense of this. But I mean, historically, uh, China has used penal labor in um, a lot of different programs. China is obviously not unique in doing that. But um, you know, the Falun Gong community has talked a lot about um, you know penal labor. Um, there's there's evidence that people who are like you know kind of like drug users, petty criminals, and stuff like that um, have have participated in penal labor. Um, there's there's a number of different systems that um, that involve this and um, they involve people like kind of all over China. And it doesn't just include people who are, uh, you know, prisoners of conscience and stuff like that it includes lots yeah. of prisoners as well. Um, Darren, your thoughts on uh, the you know renewable reliance on China and, you know, this potential trade off we may be asked to make on, uh, you know, human rights in, you know, in return for environment stuff. What, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So if we think uh, kind of historically, and I mean, like in the last 10 years, uh, discourse of ecological civilization is something that's pretty prevalent throughout China, which is about uh, uh, you know, sustainable development and things like that. 
Um, and we've seen it weaponized in a bunch of different contexts to do other work beyond simply, you know, greening the environment. So in the context of Xinjiang, it's been used to uh, put Kazakh folks, which live in the northern part of the region, and are traditionally herders, into government housing, and and then and then use their you know pasture land as like national parks or like like mm -hmm. there's this giant lake called Sairam Lake in northern Xinjiang um, that that is now illegal to graze sheep there, and they say that's because the the grazing of the sheep was destroying the environment, but it's like it's something they've done for centuries, and like these are pastoralists, like they're from the land, they know how to manage ecosystem. That's what they do best. Um, and the state is saying, no, you're not doing it right. And we need to put you in, in this government housing, you know, far away from this beautiful spot. Um, so there we see it, it being used in that way. In, in Rumchi itself, uh, lots of Uyghurs had their housing demolished in 2014-15 when I was living there. And that was because they were greening the environment because their housing was degraded. Um, because they were still using coal um, fuel to to cook their food and, and stuff like that in, in sort of the, the lower income settlements. Um, so there you see it as well. So I would not be surprised that, that the state would also weaponize, you know, concern around sustainable development globally as something that they would they would use um, as a as a diplomatic and international trade tool I haven't really looked at it directly myself um, but um, I, I would say that there's there's probably something there and Bethany do you have any thoughts on this um on what in particular uh, just this kind of like potential world where again we are technologically kind of uh, economically reliant on on goods made in China, as we try to become more green externally in the world, and then also this idea of uh, diplomatically uh, prioritizing uh, climate talks over human rights talks. I think my main uh, comment that I'd like to say is that this is not something that's consumers. It, sh it should not be the consumer responsibility. I think that's like, crazy. I think this should definitely be up to governments that they need to regulate this. That's the, that is the literally the only way to make any kind of progress in this complex issue um, is to, to you know, point out like exactly what products are problematic in terms of human rights, uh, come up with a very comprehensive regime to keep those, to get those out of our supply chains, to compensate the people who, and the companies who will be harmed by that, to help them find new suppliers and to keep those out of our supply chains. And, you know, to the extent that like, you know, for like, you know, solar panels that we're reliant on that right now, we need to have an active, very a proactive multilateral policy with specific goals in mind to move those supply chains elsewhere and to build up those industries, whether that's onshoring to the U.S., which I don't, you know, it could be any democracy or anywhere, you know, that we feel like would have good human rights protections to move those supply chains there. This cannot be done by consumers. It can only be done by governments. Uh, and I would, I would even say that we, we definitely should not leave it to companies either. So potentially like some part of a new green deal where we kind of uh, onshore a lot of this stuff could, could be helpful in, in reducing our reliance and therefore the production by the Chinese government of some yes. of this stuff. Yes. Um, very interesting. Uh, look, again, thank you all so much for coming. I, I'd like to just maybe get a concluding thought from each of you as we try to wrap up this uh, wide ranging conversation on on genocide in the 21st century and in the role that the technology is playing. Um, maybe Darren, we'll start with you. Sure. Um, so one of the things that technology is doing is it's making 
policing and control over a population um, more sustainable, I guess, or maybe that's the wrong word, but easier to do. Um, so maybe in the past, you know, in order to actually transform or destroy a people, you needed to kill them or kill significant portions of them. I think the state doesn't feel like it has to do that because it can control this population, can put them in force in, in forms of forced labor um, behind checkpoints that are nested. You know, it's it's a the the border logics throughout this space are intense. You're going through basically a border crossing, you know, at jurisdictional boundaries all the time. You know, some people I've interviewed said they did it 10 times a day. They had their face and ID scan 10 times a day, which is, you know, the same as going through, you know, the border security at an airport as you're flying internationally um, in, in a lot of ways, in the ways that it's it's matching your face to your ID and all of that. Um, so it means that the state is able to control movement to a much larger degree than they could in the past. Um, and then when they have these, these digital forensics tools that are scanning people's phones on a regular basis, they start to control people's uh, online speech, their social network, who they can communicate with. Um, and so it's, it's something that is unprecedented um, and is producing a, a kind of a slower, you know, higher tech form of, of genocidal violence something that transforms a population at the scale of generation rather than, you know, in an event-based mass killing. So I think that's how we have to think about this issue. And we have to think about technology as something that extends the power of, of, of the state and those that are benefiting from the system, from the industrialists that are working in these factories that are, are using this labor. Um, it's extending their power and diminishing the power and, and the freedom of the people that are contained and controlled by the system. Um, and it is horrific. It's something that we need to stand in opposition to. And we need robust multilateral responses to these kinds of surveillance systems, to these kinds of policing systems. Um, and we have to start at home, I think, to probably do some of that. Um, but we have to think internationally and, and um, and work with partners to, to make it happen. I mean, we need we need a political will to do this. Thank you. Um, Mega, would you like to say a little something here? Sorry. Um, yeah, I guess when, for me, I think, um, you know, I get asked a lot, like, wouldn't the Chinese government just be doing this with or without the technology? Like, why does the technology actually matter? To me, the best way to think about surveillance tech in this context is as a multiplier. I think it's a multiplier of the policy, um, and it's been it's been pretty effective at doing that. If you look at the history of surveillance, right? When we think about sur government surveillance, I think the first thing that everybody thinks about is the Stasi. But government surveillance, like far predates the Stasi. There there are examples all over the world in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Vienna in China. You could take it back to the Ming Dynasty, um, and in most of those cases, what you had was a system of of informants, right? So you had governments encouraging neighbors to inform on one another. Um, you know, teachers to inform on students and, uh, you know, employers and so forth, right? And uh, you had this again in China, of course, during during the, the Mao era and, and the subsequent period, right? Um, so why is this different? So essentially what this is, is the kind of like digitization of the, the whole informant system. If you think about the Stasi, I think one of the most remarkable things is about the Stasi is like how much manpower they put into gathering really, really prosaic bits of data about um, individual citizens. And they, they did all of this manually. They did it by, you know, 
tapping phones and um, collecting reports from neighbors and, and all of those things. And there were people that were actually going through these files. So like what the tech, like uh, surveillance tech has enabled government authorities to do in Xinjiang is cut out that step of having to like physically go through all of this information. And of course, the technology also enables the government to collect like vastly more data, right? So prior to this period, most of your kind of socializing would have been done in like in-person institutions, like, you know, maybe your church group or your student group or, or, or anything or parents groups and stuff like that. Um, now, of course, we all do this on the internet. So it's way easier to monitor people's speech and their activities, their organizations um, online. And then even in physical space, like one of the things we've seen in Xinjiang is the rise of like the widespread use of biometric surveillance technologies. So, um, you know, this is something that the Stasi could have only dreamed of having access to. Right. So to me, it's two things. It's, it's like, um, you know, it's it's a multiplier in terms of the collection of information. And it's a it's a huge multiplier in terms of the analysis of the information and uh, the ability to automate that. And that's kind of why I think it matters. Thank you. And and Bethany. Um, and by the way, Bethany, the, the, the fact that the UN Secretary General has never never mentioned the word Uyghur or, or Xinjiang is, is amazing. And uh, I, I learned that today from you. So thank you. Yeah, it's really depressing. Um, I mean, I don't know if he's ever he's never said the word Xinjiang, but he's never criticized. He's never too. tweeted the. I just checked. He's never not once tweeted either yeah. word in any oh. context. Okay, well there you go. Yep. Um, so I would just close by talking about so you know the how we're responding to what China is doing, and uh, just to repeat kind of what I said before. This you know responding to China's use of technology and surveillance cannot be left up to industry. And it cannot be left up to consumers because I don't know of any of any example ever of a company or an industry organization coming out proactively ahead of the curve against what China is doing. Um, you know, it's they do that retroactively after governments start talking about it. After, you know, maybe after there's been investigative journalism, we cannot rely on them to lead. And consumers are not empowered enough and just don't, you know, that will never, it, it's too complex an issue to expect people to go, you know, re research this stuff on their own. That means that governments have to act and they need to act in a couple of different ways. First of all, like, as I mentioned before, getting this stuff out of their supply chains, but that's just, a, that's a, an initial step. And the second thing that, that what democratic governments absolutely must work together to do is to come up with um, a multilateral democratic tech standard. Um, yeah, a tech standards body to help deal with this issue going forward. To say we're gonna we're gonna do these standards. We're gonna have you know with each other. We're gonna trade in each other's technologies. We're gonna work on innovation together to make sure that democratic countries are still able to innovate and have a really big and um, flourishing space for that innovation without having to make compromises in dealing with countries like China and Russia. Um, and then to again have these standards as a counterweight. Um, there's something called the California effect, uh, which is like, you know, California's market is so huge that its own auto emissions standards become the de facto auto emissions standards for the entire U.S. and even some other countries because our, our auto market is so big. And so the idea is that if China has such a huge, you know, if it's setting its own tech standards, which, which allow for surveillance technology to be used in these very radical and extreme ways, there needs to be a counter market that can sort of push back against that and say, look, you want to sell to us, you, you know, your, your, your standards need to be like this in a democratic tech standards market. So those would be the, the, the two policies suggestions that I would put out. Yeah. And just, you know, my thoughts are uh, as a concluding thought, the, uh, you know, this idea of the Streisand effect where someone tr wants to censor something, but they bring it up. 
uh, and it backfires, this is something we should exploit. So we should just always keep talking about this. And eventually, you know, as you as you pointed out, Darren, it's like, you know, oh, like H&M has to boycott the cotton from this place. Well, why would they do that? Oh, what's happening in that place? Okay, so we want to like continue to force people, especially in China, to think about this. So, so let's just keep talking about this topic. I want to thank our guests. We continue on Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern with Complicity and Clothing, Xinjiang Cotton and the Fashion Industry. According to the Coalition to End Uyghur Forced Labor, a stunning 20% of the world's cotton comes from the Uyghur region and one in five cotton garments in the global apparel market are tainted by forced labor. What are some of the brands that have been found to use forced labor and what are the, some of the latest updates around this topic? One of the speakers is actually going to be um, the author of a book called Made in China, A Prisoner, an SOS Letter, and the Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. So I think that's going to be a great program. Please join us on Tuesday. Thanks again to all of our speakers, to Darren, Mega, Bethany. Thank you all so much. Uh, HRF and its community are very grateful, uh, as well as all of our partners. And we'll see you again soon. Thank you.